For decades, Darwinian evolution has reigned as the scientific paradigm explaining the origins of life. But that may all change. A growing number of scientists are exploring and embracing what's being called intelligent design. Our guest today is right in the middle of the controversy. In fact, he's started much of it, and you're about to hear from him. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukerin. This is a program exploring cultural and spiritual issues from a Christian perspective, emphasizing reason, logic, and evidence. And we have terrific resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Download our past shows on topics like world religions, the cults, and the occult, commentaries on movies and media, debates, and Dr. Zukerin's books and articles. That's Evidence and Answers.org. Well, today is part one of our interview with Dr. Michael Behe. So, Pat, let's introduce him. Yes, thank you, Kevin. If you've been paying attention to the debate between intelligent design and Darwinian evolution, one name keeps coming up. One name is in the middle of the entire controversy there. Dr. Michael Behe. Dr. Michael Behe has a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Pennsylvania. He is presently a professor of biological sciences at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. His current research involves delineation of design and natural selection in protein structures. He's a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture and author of a very significant book here, the author of Darwin's Black Box and his recent work, The Edge of Evolution, which we'll be talking about on this show. But Dr. Behe, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Well, Dr. Behe, I'm sure as a young scientist, you dreamed of winning the Nobel Prize and other prestigious scientific awards. I'm sure you did not imagine becoming one of the most controversial or in some cases the most criticized man in science, did you? No, no, I, I sure didn't. I, I started out pretty conventionally and just doing, you know, getting my degrees and doing my research along the way. But then I kind of stepped on the, the third rail and started talking about uh, how, how we got here. Dr. Behe, tell us about your journey that uh, went from a scientist and then moving into this whole area of intelligent design. How'd that come about? Well, originally my area of interest wasn't evolution at all. I'm a biochemist. I was interested in DNA structure and protein structure. And, and I was taught Darwinian evolution in college and graduate school, and it all sounded just fine to me. And I, I thought it was correct because, you know, who was I to say that my instructors who were telling me it was correct, uh, who was I to say that they were wrong? But I have to admit that taking biochemistry classes in college and, and graduate school, you, you learn about a lot of very, very intricate structures and systems uh, in the cell. And I often did kind of scratch my head and wonder, well, how did that evolve? And then I kind of shake my head and say, well, I don't know, but I guess somebody must know. And, uh, and then I uh, went and concentrated on my own work. But that's the way I was until up until the late 1980s. And I, then I read a book called Evolution, A Theory in Crisis by a, an Australian geneticist by the name of Michael Denton. And Denton was not a religious fellow, but he was tired of hearing Darwinists claim a lot of things for their theory that he, he saw a lot of problems for. And he, he wrote his book just essentially pointing out the, all the big difficulties with Darwin's theory. And that astonished me because I had never heard anybody say there were problems <laughs> with Darwin's theory. And, and at that time, I was an associate professor here at, at Lehigh, a, a rather prominent school, and, and I should have known about these things. And so it made me mad that I hadn't heard of anything, and I didn't have any answers to the 
uh, problems that Denton pointed out. And so, it, like I said, it, it angered me. I thought I was being led down the primrose path, uh, being led to believe something not because the evidence for it was compelling, but because that's what we were supposed to believe. That's, you know, in the 20th century then, uh, that's that's the way we thought. And so from that point on, I became very interested in, in evolution and, and Darwin's theory and so on, whereas before I, I was not. And it, it doesn't take long once you become skeptical of Darwin's theory to, to see that it's got many problems and that that other explanations are, are better. Well, Dr. Behe, you know, science is about the discovery of truth and therefore should be open to discuss new ideas and theories. And I just wonder, all the things that I have been reading, the debates that I have seen, why is intelligent design not welcome to the table of discussion in the science world? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And, and I always thought science was about truth, too. And that's what I was taught when I was uh, being educated in sciences, and that's what most people think. But a man named Philip Johnson, who was a professor of law at University of California at Berkeley and a critic of Darwin's evolution, he really kind of hit the nail on the head about, oh, 15 years ago. He said there are actually there are two definitions of science, and people don't know about it, and they get switched around. One is the all-out pursuit of truth uh, about the world as, as we find it, but the second is kind of uh, is uh, the pursuit of material explanations, or the best explanation we can come up with as long as we shackle ourselves to the idea that everything in the universe is the result of random processes and laws and motion and matter and so on. And usually you don't hear about this uh, other definition of science. It's only when you ask yourself, well, what is the origin of life, or what is the origin of the universe, or how does the human mind work, or is there any evidence for free will, or, or all of these questions which touch on you know the most basic and interesting uh, aspects of nature. And once you do that, as I found out, you quickly run afoul of people who don't want answers to questions to stray into areas that they kind of have philosophical disagreements with. And you find out that there's a, a large fraction of influential scientists, not certainly not all scientists, maybe not even a majority, but the ones who kind of call the shots and set the tone say they will rule out of bounds any answer, no matter how well supported by evidence, that seems to point to something beyond the universe, like mind Many people will you know, think, uh, think of as God or some force beyond nature which is responsible for it. So um, science is the pursuit of truth until it gets into touchy areas. <laughs> and then it's, it's, uh, it can oftentimes turn into a political game. Well, Dr. Behe, you really have had to develop, I think, a thick skin because uh, you have been so maligned and attacked. Um, oh, yeah. Just, just a, just a cursory look across the internet. I mean, it gets downright personal. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, that's that's the beauty of the internet these days. Yeah. If you're going to go into a controversial area these days, even you know, even a controversial scientific area, most people think of science as you know a bunch of Mr. Spocks, you know, standing by the lab bench, just you know, just cranking out the data, and you know what the data says. That's that's it, and there's no emotion. But it turns out that uh, scientists and and people interested in science too care very much, and they can be 
rather nasty at, at times. But you know, I've got a I've got a very nice family, and I've got all the I've got a lot of friends. So well, you've also had a lot of support too, haven't you? I mean, from the from the uh, professional community. Oh yeah, I, I have from a lot of people. There are a lot of uh, scientists who are interested in intelligent design. And uh, a lot of other folks as well, historians, philosophers, and so on, and uh, they've been quite uh, supportive too. So, uh, you know, you get the bad, you, you get a lot of good to, to balance it out too. So it's, it's not all that difficult to put up with. So what you're saying is that it's not all true that, you know, scientists are objective and objectively, you know, in a neutral manner, critique uh, the uh, data that they discover. There's a oh. worldview or a philosophy behind it, isn't there? Oh, uh, that's absolutely true, and and a number of people have been saying that for a while, but we have this kind of romantic view of science as just the unvarnished pursuit of truth, but it turns out there is no such thing as science. It's, there, is, there are only scientists, and there's no such thing as data that interprets itself. It's always some person looking at some numbers or some, some uh, evidence or something and deciding what it points to or what it says. And there are some people who will not uh, allow data to point in the direction that, you know, there's a mind behind the universe. There's plenty, there's a lot of people who will say that the data, you know, show otherwise, that it looks like, you know, there is no mind behind the universe. Uh, a man named Richard Dawkins, who's a biologist at Oxford University and a, a prominent one of the new atheists, although he's pretty old at this point. Uh, he's <laughs> one. He, say, he says the data of the universe points to no design, that there's no mind behind it. And he doesn't get much hassle for that. And yet if a scientist says, no, I think the data of the universe, the physical data, not, not philosophical or not other data, but the, the, the physical data we see, I, th I think it does point to design. Then you get uh, kind of jumped on with, with both feet. So, yeah, the idea of an utterly neutral science is one of those myths just kind of like the good guy in old westerns and, and so on. It's it's kind of a just a stereotype that does not really exist. Dr. Behe, there's something else that's kind of maddening, and I see this, of course, all over the Internet, but also when you were at Southern Methodist University at a conference there, you heard this all throughout the audience, mostly from skeptics, and they always say this, well, there's a paper that disproves that, or there's a paper that actually proves that or shows that or something like that. There's always a paper somewhere. Yeah. And the thing is, they don't know who wrote it or where it is, but there's always a paper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's maddening because what kind of a response is that? I mean, that's a conversation ender. Uh, yeah, it's like, it show me the paper. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and some people will give you a, a list of, you know, 80 papers and say, you know, look, these all show that you're wrong. And, you know, it's, it's a, a fun debating move because you can, you know, make your opponent uh, time up a notch because how can you, you know, discuss 80 papers in the, in the time allowed. And if you go to these papers then eventually and sift through them, you find that they have nothing to do with what the, the fellow is talking about. So there's a lot of smoke that is blown around this issue. But the basic point, which is undeniable, is that the very foundation of life that is the cell and, and the molecular machines, literally machines that we have discovered run life, is extremely elegant and complex and was totally unpredicted by Darwin's theory 
and has not been uh, explained by it. And in any other circumstances, if we found such machinery, such nanotechnology on another planet, we would immediately think that there had been some alien race that designed it. In any other context, we would perceive the design of this, this machinery. But uh, for philosophical reasons, a lot of people in the scientific community don't want to acknowledge that. You know, Dr. Behe, one of the criticisms of the intelligent design movement is the lack of peer-reviewed publications. How do you respond to that? Well, I say that all of the papers that we talk about are peer-reviewed. I'm not making up the data in my own head, or it's not even, you know, data that I cook up in my own laboratories. It's papers that are out in the major journals that everybody has read. So I don't understand the criticism. It's, it's not about what the data is. It's about how to make sense of it. And the arguments that I make are, are based on the firmest science we've got. So, so again, so the conclusion of intelligent design is based on peer-reviewed materials. You know, Dr. B, he well-known biologist, and I, I believe he's a, a Christian, Dr. Francis Collins, has been critical of intelligent design and a big proponent of evolution. You know, what concerns you the most about his particular positions? Well, yeah, he's, he's one there. There are a couple of very prominent scientists like Collins, and another one that comes to mind is a man named Simon Conway Morris, who's uh, at uh, Cambridge University in England, and a a very eminent paleontologist and a Christian whose faith, uh, like Collins' faith, I have no reason to, to doubt. And they are both big proponents not only of evolution but of Darwinism, that things looked like they were not designed. And all I can say is that, I don't know, I guess they have their own reasons for thinking that, but I have read their books very closely, and they never try to explain how evolutionary processes or Darwinian processes could make the complex structures of the cell or, or, or of life. In other words, you know, they might be convinced for any a number of reasons. Maybe, you know, that's just the way they were taught to think and they, they stay in that mode of thinking, but they have no more answers to the questions that ID raises than do other scientists. And one thing that really disappoints me about about Dr. Collins and, and Dr. Conway Morris as well is that they oftentimes join in, although not quite as rambunctiously, the ridicule of intelligent design that Darwinists engage in. So they, they don't actually address the arguments, but they call it silly and, and you know, uh, other, other names too. And they try to win by ridicule and by social pressure what they cannot win by argument and explanation uh, of the data. So whatever causes them to think Darwinism is a good theory, I, I don't know, but certainly neither of them have come up with what I consider to be persuasive explanations of how Darwinian processes could account for life. Now, in Darwin's time, you make the point that the technology limited their understanding of the complexity of things, such as the cell. The perceived simplicity of the cell led many to think that life could arise spontaneously. This is the context of understanding, you know, in which Darwin developed his theory, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Most people are probably uh, still in, in the position that Darwin was uh, back in his day. You know, most people who aren't scientists, they, they think of organs as kind of squishy things and cells as little, you know other squishy things. And in Darwin's day, the cell, which had actually just been discovered as some important 
but undefined entity in, in life. With the microscopes of the 19th century, it looked like a, a little kind of blob of jello, microscopic blob of jello. And that's what scientists of the time pretty much thought that it was. And some thought that it was so simple that maybe it could just spontaneously arise, like from mud or sea mud, which a couple of famous scientists actually did propose that in, in Darwin's day. And so Darwin was working from the idea that life, the beginning of life, the foundation of life, the cell, was was no big deal. It could kind of pop up spontaneously, and, and he could kind of go from there. But as science advanced, we have discovered that that idea is spectacularly wrong, that rather than the cell being a little piece of jello, it's, it's kind of like a, a nanoscale factory with all sorts of computer-controlled equipment responsible for manufacturing things, for controlling processes, for all, you know, the, the equipment that you see in perhaps the most modern factories in our age, uh, you know, controlling automobile manufacturer, or manufacturer of computers or something, is, you know, <laughs> less sophisticated than what we have discovered in the cell. So the kind of foundation of Darwinian thought that life at bottom is simple has been turned upside down. Now, now we know that even the tiniest life is very complex. And, and rather than as we descend from the organism, like, you know, a dog or a flower or something, down into organs like a heart or, or uh, roots or something, and get smaller and smaller, biologists of Darwin's day thought things would get simpler, we now know they get actually more complex. And so that's, uh, again, unexpected by Darwinism. And it, it points to design. It's kind of like looking at your computer and saying, gee, that keyboard looks complex. But probably when I learn how the computer works, the complexity of that keyboard will get, get simpler. But as you learn how computers work, it turns out when you get, take off the back of the computer and look at the CPUs and, and all the wiring and so on, it, it gets much more complex than it looked from the outside. And that's what we've discovered about life, too. You know, with the technology that we have today, we have discovered the cell to be much more complex than Darwin ever imagined. But how has that affected the Darwinian theory of evolution? Have any major changes been made? It seems to have remained the same yeah, despite it, these uh, discoveries. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it uh, it has one trick. Darwin theory has one trick, and that's the idea that well, you know, if some change just popped up by chance when a an organism was replicating, uh, reproducing, and if that change un, unspecified gave it an advantage, then it and its descendants would be more likely to survive. And maybe if that happened again, it would keep getting better and better and better. And that's pretty much the whole amount of, of Darwin's theory. And it's such a vague idea that people can, can imagine all sorts of things. They can imagine things, but they, when, you, when you start to go into the details, that's, that's where the trouble pops up. But Darwin's theory started out when biology thought that life was based on jello, and it seems to, it continues unchanged now that we know that that was the opposite of the truth, that life is based on complex machinery. Uh, so theories that can chug along when essentially all of the facts that they thought were correct turn out to be wrong and their opposites turn out to be correct uh, is very suspect. But 
but I think that for reasons other than its scientific value, the, the, the theory stays popular in science. Well, in our last few minutes that we have together in this first segment, uh, Dr. Behe, what are some key challenges to your particular theory of irreducible complexity that have arisen, or has there been any? Yeah, there have been a, a couple. I, I don't think they are actual challenges, but they're they're certainly popular and are common. And uh, from the emails and so on, feedback I get, uh, they seem to um, a lot of people wonder about them. And one is the idea that well, you know, yes, you say that many molecular machines are irreducibly complex, and by that I mean that they need a number of components to work. And if you take away one of the components, it, it the machine doesn't work anymore. And in my book, Darwin's Black Box, as an illustration of this, I used uh, a, a mousetrap. It's a, a common mechanical mousetrap that you, say, buy at a hardware store. It has a number of different parts. It's got a spring and a metal part that strikes the mouse and a little metal bar that stabilizes the the uh, hammer until, it, until the mouse comes along and, and other parts, too. And uh, if you take away one of the parts, it doesn't work anymore. And I said this was a problem for Darwin's theory because things like this, irreducibly complex systems, don't work until all the parts are put together. And if Darwin's theory says that things have to improve gradually one tiny step at a time, which is, is what he proposed, then these irreducibly complex systems are, are big challenges to that theory. And a lot of people have uh, focused on that and tried to, tried to uh, show that that was mistaken. I don't think they've succeeded, but uh, that's where a lot of energy has been expended. And, and ever since my first book was was uh, printed, uh, there's been kind of a cottage industry on the internet uh, of people trying to come up with mouse traps by by small steps. And it's kind of funny to to, to see people try. And uh, but I think one particular idea has caught on, and that's that if you can use a part of a machine for some other purpose, then the argument goes, then you sh have shown it is not irreducibly complex. For In other words, for the, uh, the bacterial flagellum, um, there's a simpler version of it uh, out there that, uh, that has another bodily function or cellular function or something like that? That's right. Uh, there's, uh, the bacterial flagellum is this little outboard motor that bacteria use to, s to swim, and it's literally an outboard motor. It, it, you know, there's a propeller and a motor, and it turns the propeller and allows the bacterium to swim. Uh, but there's a subset of the parts of that which can act as a pump, and it turns out that in order to build itself, this fantastic machine has to pump its own parts out uh, towards the end of it so that it can assemble them uh, in the correct fashion. And, and no Darwinist ever suspected that such a thing existed. But uh, nonetheless, after it was discovered, they said, aha, you know, you said it was irreducibly complex, and yet here's this other part or this subset of parts that can act as a pump. So clearly it's not irreducibly complex because it functions. And my response is that that's not my definition of irreducibly complex. I said if you take away a part... Uh, the function of the system, which was to act as a propeller, a, a motor, uh, an outboard motor, disappears. And it's clearly true that if you take away the parts, then it no longer can function as an outboard motor. They all have to be working at the same time. It's like they had to come together all at the same time, correct? Yeah, that, that is correct. Take one part away, the whole thing doesn't work. 
just like in a in a mousetrap. And and if you think about it, most a lot of machines are like that. Maybe you know the great majority of machines. You take away some spark plugs in your car, you know it's not going anywhere. You take away the tires in your car, that's it's not going anywhere either. Many even moderately complex machines, like say a mousetrap, if you take away parts, they're not going to uh, they're not going to work. And you can get into an argument. And somebody can kind of try to quibble with you, but Darwinism would run into problems with any modestly complex machine. And, and what we found is that the machinery in the cell is not modestly complex. It's, it's uh, overwhelmingly and sophisticatedly and elegantly uh, complex. And uh, I regard many of these arguments as, as pretty much just kind of trying to bicker. But the point remains is that the complexity of the, the cell is, has never been shown to be able to be produced by Darwinian processes. And now we have really good reasons to think that it, it, it simply can't be. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Michael Behe. He's a professor of biological science at Lehigh University and one of the key thinkers introducing a very significant theory here in the debate between Darwinian evolution and intelligent design irreducible complexity. Now he's going to be back with us next week as we discuss more on his significant theory here and uh, two recent books that he has, well, the recent book he has published, The Edge of Evolution. So Dr. Behe, thanks for being with us this week. We look forward to being with you next week. Well, thank you so much for joining us for Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zukerin. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and intellectually considers the claims of Christ in an honest and loving way. And we'd like to ask you to join us. Please support us with your tax-deductible financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. Read Pat's articles and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. It's all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zuccarin.